You're listening to Offscript, the Atlanta Canada politics podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. This week, we're going to bring you a live conversation that we had last Wednesday. So while all of you were listening to episode 28, where we interviewed Kelsey Lane from the Halifax Cycling Coalition, we were in the Maritime Hall of the Halifax Forum recording episode 29 as part of an event we did called Engaging the Disengaged, a workshop for the already engaged, where we brought people together who are already engaged in politics and invited them uh, to share some of their ideas and hear some perspectives from people uh, that we had invited as guests uh, about uh, how do you engage people who aren't engaged in politics. So the conversation you'll hear is a panel discussion between myself, uh, Stephen Esty, Jenna Brookfield, and Jelana Lewis. And I give a proper introduction to everybody uh, in the room. The event was made possible through support from Elections Canada as part of their Inspire Democracy program. Before I drop you into that discussion, I'm going to let you know about a dynamic in the room that uh, is important for you to understand is that uh, Steve Esty, if you don't know him, uh, is deaf. And he was able to participate in this conversation with us because of the wonderful folks at AB Captioning Inc. And specifically Luella, who was live transcribing the evening for him. She wasn't in the room, uh, but he was getting it on his iPad. Uh, So there's a four to five second delay uh, from when I or one of the other speakers uh, says something directed at Steve and when he has the ability to respond, because that's when the captions appear on his iPad. So with that noted, enjoy this discussion. And if you want to make sure you are invited to the next discussion like this, make sure to join our mailing list. We're at springtide.ngo. If you're on a page for 20 seconds, a little puppy will pop up and ask you to join. And you can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter, at springtideco, to find out about these kind of discussions. All right, here's our conversation from last Wednesday, March 14th, in Halifax, at the Maritime Hall at the Halifax Forum. So, uh, I'd like to introduce our panel. On the far end, we have Jenna Brookfield, and she is a social activist with a passion for creating equity and safety in our workplaces. She's involved in working to mobilize people around specific issues and within the labor movement, and has also been involved in projects that engage traditionally underrepresented groups uh, of the population in politics and government more broadly. And then we have uh, Jelana Lewis, who is a social justice lawyer, passionate about championing voices that often aren't heard, and Jelana managed the successful campaign for the now municipal councillor, Lindell Smith. And we have Steve Esty, who is an advocate for people living with disabilities. He's with the Nova Scotia League for Equal Opportunity. He was involved in the development of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. In 2013, he ran for the NDP and has done a great deal of nonpartisan work to support persons with disabilities engaging in politics including some collaborations with the current Speaker of the House of Assembly here in Nova Scotia, Kevin Murphy. So welcome to our panelists. So I want to start, uh, I guess, before even jumping into the question of engaging the disengaged, uh, when I, Jelana, when I reached out to you uh, and I said something along the lines of, uh, it'd be great to have uh, someone like yourself from Lindell's campaign, because as I see it, the campaign did a really good job of engaging people who are disengaged uh, traditionally or haven't been very involved in politics. And your response was, yeah, it did, including me. And I would love to hear about where, where you were at before and what was it that motivated you to jump in, not just to the campaign, but to manage it. Um, so prior to working on his campaign, I had not worked on a 
political campaign ever before. Um, I had no intention of working on his campaign, but I knew that he was running and I wanted to donate just a little bit of money to his campaign and I wanted to encourage friends to do that, but I thought I should probably meet him before I tell people to give him money um, and just to make sure he's a nice guy. So we knew of each other and we grew up in the same neighborhood, but we didn't actually know each other. Um, so we met and I was just talking with him and then I asked who, your campaign man who his campaign manager was and he didn't have an answer and he kind of looked at me and I thought, no, there's no way I'm doing <laughs> this. Um, but it was really timing. Um, I, a contract was ending, I was available and I thought, if he can run for city council, and the reason that he ended up running is because he was kind of looking for someone to run, um, and everyone kept saying to him, why don't you run? Uh -huh. um, and that's how he got in involved himself. So it's kind of a similar experience for me. I thought, why not? I'm sure we can figure this out together. Um, so it was timing, but also just curiosity in a sense. Hmm. And when it came to... Uh I guess pulling other people in did that just was that just a snowball strategy you just keep asking people and it was a mix I really had no idea what I was doing at all I didn't uh -huh. even know what e-day was I didn't know e-day was a whole separate thing <laughs> like I had no idea um, so I asked a lot of questions and oh it's back on I asked questions uh, relied a lot on my community which is also kind of a, na a natural network as well mm -hmm. um, I had to figure out how to ask for help and how to ask people to feel comfortable helping in different types of ways um, so I learned how to do that throughout the process I think I got better at it as the time went on um, but it it wasn't something that was just natural figuring out how to get people involved in the campaign right away Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, Jenna, one of the things uh, when we were corresponding before the, uh, the events you had brought up, which I think is a, a really common challenge in question, is uh, the difference between engaging people about getting involved on a very specific thing, like I'm assuming sign this petition or vote for this candidate, uh, versus just getting involved more generally. Uh, which of those do you think is easier? Uh, I think they're both hard in their own way, although generally getting people involved in a single issue uh, can be easier just because it's time sensitive. Generally the, uh, the issues are sort of dictated by external environmental factors, you know, uh, an issue is bubbled up in the media so there's an ongoing debate about it, uh, or governments may be proposing new legislation on a topic. So that kind of initiates a conversation which gives us an opening to say, are there people who need to be involved in this conversation? Are there voices that are missed in this dialogue? Are there people who have something really relevant to say and am I in a position to help their voice be heard? So that's in some ways easier just because you often and the framework's already there, someone else has generated the discussion, so you're not trying to sort of cold mm. start that conversation. Um, that being said, it's also a lot of work just because timeframes are tight. You know, if, uh, if it's government proposing some new legislation, you know, even if it's months out, somehow uh, you need to overcome the, uh, the barriers of geography and complacency to uh, somehow reach out to those people who may be interested, make sure they're informed and hopefully see it the way that, uh, that you want them to. I'm not, not saying we want to uh, mislead how people perceive things, but sometimes the only uh, engagement people have is 
what they read in the headline or what mm -hmm. uh, CNN or CBC are saying. And uh, we cannot capture the complexity of any of the issues in our society in a soundbite or in eight seconds or less. So how then do you develop a communication strategy that you can, uh, can make it relevant to those individuals, to explain to them why this matters to you and why your voice should be heard right now. Uh, then you also come up sort of a, a bit of a fatalistic attitude sometimes that people feel that the only chance they have to change things are during elections when we can wholesale swap one government for another. And uh, I, I'm personally a big fan of what I call small a activism, like that's keeping a hand on the wheel in between governments, mm. bureaucratic lobbying, um, hounding our politicians, making sure that our voices are heard. Then when you're um, the, uh, the, the more difficult process I find though is trying to engage underrepresented communities in general. Because to do that, we need to start with looking at what factors are leading to the disengagement. Uh, are there systemic barriers in place? What can be done to overcome those? And quite often you find that those barriers that are in place are things that may take years to, uh, barriers that may take years to, uh, to dismantle. So a very long-term project. So the, uh, the issues-based, I guess, is somewhat easier because you can actually see results sometimes within a few months. But mm -hmm. um, Breaking down those barriers to get whole communities involved obviously is going to pay huge dividends to our society as a whole over generations. Thanks. Steve, uh, I'm curious, you ha have a, a bunch of experiences and I almost don't know where to start. Uh, so uh, I, I want to start with a question around, uh, because I know you were involved in uh, the development of the UN Declaration on the Rights of People with Disabilities and there is a big section of that that is about uh, ensuring equal uh, political participation and representation. And I wonder if you could just maybe share with us how we're doing on that as, as a country and, and a place and, and where there might be opportunities for us to do better. That's an interesting question, Mark. Can you hear me okay? I can't tell. Everybody hear me okay? Great. Sometimes I shout, if I do, put your hand up, I'll calm down, okay. <laughs> um, the convention, the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities talks about the whole range of human rights. So it talks about the right to health, the right to work, the right to life, all of those things. When Canada ratified the convention in 2010, as a disability rights activist who'd been involved with the convention for a long time, I was looking for pressure points, ways to actually engage government around the convention and getting it to implement the convention. So one of the key fundamental human rights it talks about is, as you say, the right to participate in public and political life. So I got thinking about this and talking to people about it, and the more I thought about it, the more I talked about it, it became clear to me and to those around me that that was really, in so many ways, the linchpin for the whole convention because you really need to engage in public and political life in order to get decision makers to come around to your way of thinking. And the disability community, like so many other marginalized communities in our country and around the world, are not centrally involved in decision making in their community, in their province, in their country. So as I moved forward with this, it became a question, it almost like a chicken and egg sort of thing, you know? And 
the, but the, the thing that was interesting about making it an entry point for engagement with politicians is when you start talking to politicians about the right to participate in public life, then that's something that resonates with them. That's something they say, hey, I like the sound of that. That's good. It's good to get people out in the community and think no matter what background they come from, they're all starting out from a place of wanting to engage the community and things. So that's how we got involved in this and it's how we've tried to move things forward with the convention in a, in a sort of a global way. I'm not sure that answers your question fully, but it's my <laughs> best shot, okay? okay. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if you could just share maybe a bit about your experience as, as a candidate and uh, as a very, I guess, direct experience. How accessible is it to be a candidate mm -hmm. campaigning with a disability? <laughs> yeah, sure. I was really interested to listen to your comments about Lindell because my experience was almost exactly the same as his. I started out going from this work that I was talking about, about getting people engaged in the convention and getting engaged in public life and stuff. So I started to say, well, what we need to do is get disabled people out running for office, right? So I run around the country talking to people about getting disabled people running for office and saying what a great idea that would be, all the mm -hmm. time thinking that's going to be some other disabled guy, not <laughs> me. That's not what I want to do. I'm a human rights activist and I need to remain nonpartisan and aloof from that. I need to be mm -hmm. able to work with whatever party it is, so I didn't want to be involved with that. But in 2013, about six or eight months before the provincial election, um, I was approached by the NDP and asked if I would consider running for office. And my initial response was, hell no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and I had a whole long list of reasons why I wouldn't do that. They were good reasons. I had thought this through clearly. There were a number of reasons why I should not run for Can office. Can you share some of them? Mm -hmm. Sure, sure, sure. The first of all, as I say, I wanted to remain nonpartisan. Secondly, I thought, how am I as a deaf guy going to actually campaign? How am I going to do that, you know? I mean, I got this, all these wires connected to me. I got an iPad here so you can talk to me and stuff. You don't do that when you're knocking on a thousand doors. You don't go with a panel truck and wires and microphones and things like that when you're knocking on apartment doors. So I thought the logistics of it were just simply overwhelming. Mm. I couldn't do it. And, uh, and a whole bunch of other things like that. So I was meeting with, with people about this, and I would talk to them about my reasons for not getting involved and stuff, and we dispense with one reason and we dispense with another. And finally, at the end of it, I kind of ran out of reasons why I, I couldn't do that, and it got to the point where it was almost embarrassing for me <laughs> to be saying, you know, you should be doing, you should be getting people to run for office, but not be prepared to do it for my, do it myself, you know? Mm. So I kind of, cornered myself with my own mouth, as often happens to me, as you might suspect, after listening to me for a couple of minutes here. But I mean, that, that whole point of just kind of going through that process, I suspect is what most people who run for office go through. They start out thinking, well, I can't do that for whatever reason. And you start to think about, think that through and, and so on. But I mean, I guess that the the big thing for me at the end of the day was to just shift my mind in the same way I suspect Lindell must have shifted his mind to saying, why me? To saying, why not me? 
you know? That, that, that's it. Why not me? Why not you and you and you? That, that's the key to this, I think. Hmm. Thanks. One thing that almost seems like a, a bit of a, a theme that came up there, and maybe I'm kind of trying to connect too many dots, but uh, so the question of can you, is it easier to engage somebody on a specific issue versus get them engaged in politics generally, it almost seems like going from telling other people to be candidates and being the candidate or kind of being the campaign manager, uh, you know, the, the yourself, uh, it seems like a jump to the no, it has to be something pretty specific to get really kind of uh, effective and excited about it. But I wonder um, maybe if, uh, I guess, t to all of you, is that, uh, is that a more effective approach to, to come to folks with a very specific sort of like, here's what, uh, here's what I'd like you to do, do you wanna be involved? Well, I, I think that's really the bait to get someone involved because you're, you're not going to get someone going from disengaged in their in the political system, disengaged in civic life, to being uh, someone who's out there running for office or leading rallies or being the people generating these petitions. So I, I think to, to get people involved to start, you need to engage with them on issues that matter to them. There's, uh, there's some change potentially happening that's going to have an impact on them. They're, they'll pay more taxes, they'll pay less taxes, they'll get more benefits, they'll get less benefits. This program they love will disappear or this program they love will be enhanced. Um, people need to see themselves in the outcome to really be able to get that first level of engagement going. Um, I, I have seen in, in my own experience that it is a little bit addictive, I think almost like a gambler's high, when people see that they get engaged on something and they have some positive results. You know, when they then see their opinions reflected in the policies of their government and in their society, then they've got a taste for it. And then I think it is easier to have those discussions about getting that person engaged as a whole, but we still then have to look at what systemic barriers might be in place that could actually prevent that person from being able to fully engage in politics, uh, whether that be you know um, uh, based on you know demographics, based on geogra geography, or any any number of factors. And you know to have a more fair, just society, we do need to find those barriers so we can try to pull them down to allow for that engagement to happen. Hmm. Um. I was just thinking about how I know that the district that Lindell now represents on city council, it's not huge geographically, um, but it, it has very different communities within it. Um, so we had to figure out how to kind of run multiple campaigns in a sense, because what mattered in the very deep North End is very different from what I kind of called the West End of the North End, um, which was also different from kind of Cornwall Street, Goddard Street. So there were, there were different things happening, different conversations happening. So we had to think, figure out what was important to folks. Um, but also we had to be, um, we didn't want to be fake or phony in terms of how we talked about those issues and not kind of creating barriers um, and being one way over here and a different way over here, but trying to meet people where they were. Um, and so recognizing that door knocking might have been really effective in one part of the neighborhood, um, but also just 
walking down the street might have been effective or just kind of meeting outside in front of the library and just sitting and seeing people as they pass by works in another neighborhood. Um, and so it was really an interesting experience in terms of um, in some parts of the neighborhood, people voted. It wasn't an issue to get people out to vote. Um, in other parts of the district, a lot of people were first-time voters. So a lot of the conversations were about um, voting on election day, whereas in other neighborhoods, it was about um, online voting. So we had to be very kind of aware of um, what mattered to folks and what was realistic for people and to have kind of very true conversations with folks and recognize that what matters in one part of the district and what's important isn't necessarily important to people in another part of the district. Hmm. And I'm curious because you mentioned first time voters, if they're, what was the, uh, I guess the approach to, to making sure that they got to the polls or, or making sure that they were able to vote because just to share some of what came up in this event in PEI, uh, you know, there is a, a few people in the room who had just recently voted for the first time and I think there was nodding heads from people that uh, remembered voting for the first time and it's like there's a scary element to it like if you don't almost like going to a doctor's office or something I'm curious how, how you might have approached the yeah, first time so very much so um, and we wanted to recognize that going to vote is in a safe space for everybody. It doesn't mm. feel like a place where you can kind of flex and say this is my democratic right. Some people feel very alienated when they walk into those spaces. Mm. Um, so it was really important for me to know exactly what people had to do when they showed up. So people didn't need ID. A lot of people don't know that. So that was a message that we really had to get out because sometimes people are still asked for things that they don't actually need to vote. Um, another thing was signage. So some of the um, voting uh, locations in the district had lots of signage at advance polls. Um, on election day, there was one at the community YMCA, there, were, there was not one sign anywhere. Um, and so I called, I called the city. So that's what I did. The folks who um, run the municipal election, I called them every second day with questions, <laughs> all the time, because I thought that's what, they, that's what their job is. So I yeah. had questions all the time for these people. Um, so I had a relationship. So on election day, I called and I said, there's no signage. And they said, what do you mean? There's a sign on the front door. Well, what about down the hill? And you know, what about those little s steps, the feet that show you which way? Uh -huh. And the person said to me, well, they know where to vote because that's where they voted last time. And I said, well, no, mm. they, ac they actually voted at the George Dixon last time. And you just need to get some signs here ASAP. So that was just kind of a very real thing that we had to do. And then the other mm. thing that we did last minute was we just kind of held like a little voting parade. <laughs> and we I think got, I saw that yeah. on, on Facebook Live. At some it looked point. like there yeah. were a lot of people there. There were maybe 20 people there. My mother brought balloons last minute, so it was very uh. exciting. Um, so we told everybody to meet us um, at a basketball court, um, and people came. And we just made lots of noise. I don't know if there was music. It felt like there was music. But, um, and we, and Lindell and his family went to vote together. And we tried to get people to come with us. Um, so that was another way to encourage people. Yeah. Awesome. 
Steve, uh, I'm wondering on, on this question of uh, is it easier to get people engaged in a specific issue versus a, a broader issue, is that uh, something you've noticed in the disability community? I think the disability community tends to engage on the same issues that everybody else does. They may have a slightly different perspective on it. You talk about transportation or something like that. They might think about transportation from the perspective of somebody who uses a wheelchair or whatever. But the same basic things are, are still there. I think, you know, that the other thing is, as I was listening to talk about, about this and about engaging and things, We're, we've been talking about this sort of from the point of view of the people who run for, for elections. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole other, hundreds of other people involved in this. And I think that one of the things that I wanted to put on the table is that as somebody who's been involved in trying to mobilize the disability community in political and public life, one of the things that I find particularly frustrating is how difficult it is for my community, people with disabilities, and perhaps others, to engage at the grassroots political level. Not so much running an election or voting, but what about getting involved in the campaign, you know? What about being uh, a returning officer? What about being any one of a number of different things that happen? And there's some focus now on making sure that things are accessible from an election point of view, that election booths are accessible and things like that. But there's a whole other undercarriage to the democratic process that doesn't yet seem to be being addressed. And I think that that's a concern. It's a concern for me because, yeah, great, it's, it's fine for somebody like me or Lindell to, to run and, and come from a particular perspective, and I encourage anyone to do that, but I encourage the hundreds of other people to look at the hundreds of other opportunities that are really the bedrock of the process. And I think that that's something that we really haven't addressed very well up till now. Mm -hmm. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, in the UK, they looked at this a few years ago. They did a whole study on it and looked at participation of people with disabilities in public and political life. And as part of a, a larger series of things, they looked at um, different communities. But I'm more familiar with the disability stuff. But there came a whole series of recommendations out of that about how you can engage and how you can support that. So they, for example, set up an office to support people with disabilities who wanted to run in, in, for office in, in the UK that would support the disability-related accommodations. Uh, that was at the beginning stages of the process, at the nomination stage and so on. So that kind of thing. They also set up mentoring. So there's a mentoring process that happens in a parliament in the UK. There's, not, there's only one level of government, it's a unitary government. But, so in the federal parliament, they have a mentoring program that targets specific groups of people in the community to come in and work in parliamentarians' offices. So you have LGBT folks, you have disabled folks, and, and so on and so forth. So you get them in there, and they start to know the process from the inside out. These things are things that take a long, long time, but I think that it's really if you only when you start to do those sort of systemic, deeply rooted approaches to things that you're going to see things pay off in the long run. Mm -hmm.
Offscript is produced by Springtide, and if you enjoy listening to what we have to share each week, we encourage you to support our work through a small monthly contribution at springtide.ngo slash offscript support. Your support means we're going to keep bringing you podcasts like this one and the ones you've been hearing over the last few months. It means we'll be able to put more time into finding and sharing more interesting stories about people trying to make an impact through politics without destroying themselves or the fabric of democracy in the process. It's been a while since we've asked you to contribute, and we know our audience has changed. For every current supporter of the podcast, there are another 33 people just listening to each episode. If you're one of those supporters, thank you for your contribution. You have kept us going. If you're one of those 33 people just listening, welcome. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, this one is on the house. But if you've been listening for a while now, we hope you'll give us your support. We're hoping for small amounts from each listener. You can contribute three, five, seven dollars a month to support the podcast. You can do that over at springtide.ngo/offscript/support. Something that makes our appeal different than those you might hear from other podcasts is that ours comes with a nice perk. Because Springtide is a registered educational charity, we offer our supporters a tax receipt, which means you pay less on your taxes when you support us. So if you want to support us, go to springtide.ngo/offscript/support. folks in the audience have questions, uh, then we are certainly interested in in hearing from you and sharing those questions with the panel. If you want to say the question, I'll just repeat it. Okay. So I think uh, if I'm hearing that, it's, it's kind of like there are, uh, you know, if one level of government is uh, saying one thing and another level of government is saying another thing, and those levels of government happen to be the same party, uh, it can be difficult to get engaged when, uh, you know, there's a, I guess, a sense of uh, it's easy to be cynical and there's a lot of reasons to kind of mistrust uh, the government. Is that a fair paraphrasing? Okay. <laughs> so, and maybe I'll, I'll just put a finer point on the question. How do we get others engaged uh, and perhaps even stay motivated ourselves a, a little bit uh, when that's the reality? Um, I think one of the, uh, the key issues that you highlight there is the role of political parties in our system and the mentality that I think we seem to have developed around political parties. Because today it seems like people support a party like the way they support their local sports team. You know, it's uh, I am for this group and I will, you know, I will not only vote for them, but they will tell me sometimes what my views should be on, on particular issues. And that gets particularly confusing when, uh, you know, you have the two groups that use the same name that have different stances on things. As you mentioned, uh, climate change, you know, we do see a federal government that talks about it in progressive terms, where we see some provincial governments of the same political stripe that seem to be less progressive on it. And that leads to a lot of confusion if we want to look at a party as a homogenous whole. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by, lo by looking at party first. Um, we really need to look at the candidate, that person who's sitting in that chair first, and we need to engage with them. So you're going to have obviously an MP and an MLA uh, that will represent you at, at the various levels. And I think, you know, to, uh, to fully engage ourselves, we need to set aside their political affiliations and we need to talk to both of them. 
um, we, I, I find a lot of people don't spend enough time talking to their elected officials. And I'm sure there's a lot of elected officials in the province that are going to hate me tonight because I, I say, you should call them every day. Like my MLA knows me on a first name basis. When he comes to my door, he knows that I didn't vote for him in the last election, but he knows <laughs> me because I show up at his office, you know, at least once a week. And if he doesn't return my phone call, then I stop by on the way home from work. So he's learned, you know, he may not always be able to tell me what I want to hear, but he knows that he, he will respond to me, uh, as well the, my, the um, my member of parliament. And they're both from the same party, per se, but they couldn't be more different in terms of their, their outlook, their disposition. Uh, one mm -hmm. of them uh, is, a, is a real champion for some of the issues that, that, that I'm passionate about, so I've had very constructive dialogue with them. The other person uh, is not as, uh, as supportive of some of those issues, so I still try to have the conversation, but I don't go into it with a predisposition that because they're of that party, that they're mm. going to toe that party line. The fact that they're in that party, I see is maybe an opportunity as part of that caucus that they could influence that caucus, but they're only going to be motivated to do that if they know a big enough grouping of their constituents see that as a, that issue, whatever it may be, climate change for an example, as an important issue. So we, mm -hmm. we need to influence the candidates who in turn can influence their party through caucus rather than thinking we know something about them just because of the political party affiliation that they start with. Right. Um, I can speak to the second part of your question in terms of getting folks engaged and staying engaged. I, I like to think I was kind of lucky to work on a municipal campaign because we didn't have to worry about party politics. Mm. Um, and it was an interesting introduction to uh, politics for me because the decision making kind of stopped with Lindell and I. So that there was a lot of freedom um, in that sense. Um, but I, so he won and I was really excited and the provincial election came up in Nova Scotia last spring and I thought, okay, how do I get involved? I really want to, hmm. you know, I want to keep doing this. Um, but I just wasn't ready to commit to a, a particular party. And someone said to me, can you find a, a kind of a quasi campaign, something that matters to you that can be nonpartisan. Um, and when I was working with Lindell, we got all these surveys from all these different groups. I didn't know about these surveys that right, uh, yeah. candidates received. No idea. He didn't know, I didn't know. We got surveys from the Halifax Tool Library, <laughs> surveys from a condo organization. We have a over here. Uh, okay, so all these, diff all these different groups who have very different interests, uh -huh. extremely different interests. Um, but we wanted to complete them all. Um, and so when the provincial election came around, I thought, what about a survey from the African Nova Scotian community? Why not? Hmm. Um, and that might be a good way to get people from my community to think about how they can engage. Um, it doesn't mean it has to be around a party, but can we speak to our candidates in our particular communities and ask them questions um, that we have agreed are important to us? And that was a really interesting experience because I got the uh, individual emails of all candidates. So rather than sending to the parties um, and getting, we did get stock responses in the right. end, but it was nice <laughs> to send to Hotmail boxes and Gmail <laughs> boxes just so that people might get a little nervous the same way. When I got another survey, I thought, oh, another survey. What's the due date? What are the questions? Uh -huh. um, and so, and we were able to get kind of some media attention around the survey itself. And I kind of just wanted to get that 
hygiene, um, kind of healthy hygiene around the fact that if smaller organizations, communities can do this, then we could do this too. We could do this for every election. Why not? And folks kind of feel like they have to answer or they should. And if they don't, then we can kind of say, well, we didn't get an answer from this person or this party. Um, right. So that was a really great way to stay engaged and find kind of a creative way to get other people engaged. And hopefully that will happen in the next provincial, federal, municipal elections. Mm -hmm. Anything to add, Steve? Yeah, it's really interesting listening to you guys. My own experience in, in running was that every door you knocked on, somebody had an issue. They, everybody had a thing that they, that they were passionate about. But there were many, many, many different things. And I'm just one little guy knocking on doors, you know? <laughs> and it just... <laughs> it's overwhelming. It's over, it talk about uh, the. Uh, I mean, I can remember having a, a woman be prepared for me come to knocking on her door. She was aware of the fact that I was deaf, so she had very kindly written out her questions for me, right. and she gave me, I kid you not, a five-page document of <laughs> questions about what my stand was on things related to oral hygiene. Wow. I. I that's a true story. And I mean, it's an extreme story, but it makes the point that everyone, uh, people have things that they're passionate about. So, you know, I'm thinking about this, my experience as I'm listening, you talk about being in the face of um, the MLA and stuff. And you need to be, because there are so many people with so many different things that, that are happening. So you have, to, you have to really be persistent about things, for sure. Hmm. And I think that... You know, it, it's a challenge, and in a campaign, it's such a short period of time, right? So it's not the campaign time where community activists really need to do that work. It's the in-between time where that work needs to happen, in between yeah. elections. And you can maybe focus it during a debate or something at a campaign time, but if you wait for four years and you don't really talk about your thing in a public way, and then you wait for 90 days or 60 days for the campaign, and you expect to get all the answers, mm. and you expect it to go your way, then you're not likely going to be very successful or very happy with the result. Yeah, I think that's one of those hard truths of engagement is that it takes a lot of time. One thing that made me think of is uh, something that came out that I hadn't heard of before, but came out of uh, when we asked uh, one of these questions at the PEI event we did a couple of days ago, which is the idea of a reverse door knocker. And so door knockers are sort of like the little things you put on the door when you knock on the door as a candidate and there's nobody home. So you can say, oh, I was, you know, Steve SD, I visited. Sorry, I missed you. Here's my contact information. And what they were doing is, uh, I think it was the, it might have even been the PEI uh, Council on uh, People with Disabilities on the Island. I think that's where it came from, where they gave their members a reverse door knocker to hang on the inside of the door so that when a candidate came, they could whip it out and say, here are my questions for you. Uh, sort of like taking the, I guess, the survey level to the, uh, the very, I guess, a decentralized approach to, to doing the surveys, which I thought was kind of neat. Um, I see a question over here from Tom. I'll repeat it if you can. That's a great question. So just to repeat it for folks that didn't catch it, uh, how do you get people engaged in a democracy when they're not used to it? And I think the examples were school is not a democracy, work isn't a democracy, 
and a lot of the places we spend, I guess a lot of our time isn't democratic. I guess, how do you get people in the, in the culture of, uh, understanding that you know we do live in a democracy. So I, I work for a union very active in the labor movement and uh, d uh, unions are democratic organizations. We have elected representatives and, and, and such. Uh, so uh, we, we see the same kind of things happening on a smaller scale there. So one thing, a trend I've noticed a lot of lately is increasingly a lot of employers with that I'm working with are utilizing the temporary foreign worker program. So they're bringing people in who are uh, permanent residents and are in other countries, but they're coming here temporarily to work, often in our healthcare sector. And they're coming from various different corners of the, uh, of the world or the globe, but uh, they come with some different some different notions about what uh, what democracy looks like or about mm. what even union activism looks like. So recently uh, one workplace there was this group that just would not engage, would not come to union meetings, would not voice any concern they had despite the fact that they're in the workplace, they're sort of members of that union now and we couldn't really understand what the uh, the, the um, what some of the barriers were, we thought it was language, so you know, let's uh, let's have someone available who can translate. But what it really came down to is the fact that where they came from, people were getting killed for being involved in a union. So it was uh, they saw that as a, a very dangerous mm. proposition. Uh, so it really just took time for them to first of all see that someone spoke up and you know didn't get dragged away in a black van the next day never to be seen again. So it did take them some time to acclimatize to that and I think our political system as, as a whole is going to be much the same. When we uh, when people arrive in this uh, this country they will come look at it through the lens of what their lived experiences to that point and no matter how much we tell them that in this society you have the right to vote, you have the right to engage. I think uh, more often than not, people need a little bit of time to develop some comfort with that and to see it in action. So we just need to, we need to uh, model our own behavior. We need to be publicly in the spotlight, you know, those of us who are the, the already engaged, we need to show people that it's not only safe but productive to get engaged in politics. And if we can demonstrate results ourselves, on any level in any democratic organization, municipal, federal, political, uh, any democratic organization at all, we will give those people some confidence and some hope that they, they too have that, to have that same voice. That doesn't negate the need for specific outreach to those communities, mm -hmm. for looking for those kinds of cultural and language barriers that may, um, that may um, make the messages a little harder to get across. But I, I think first and foremost, if we're not doing it ourselves and showing that success, then they're not, they're not going to see that it's either something that they can do or something that they want to do. Mm. Um, I think with Lindell's campaign, what really helped was him as the candidate. Um, so he was a really great example of what people don't typically see as a candidate. Um, and even myself as a young black female campaign manager, um, I, there were a lot of mentors I had um, who helped me, who had managed campaigns, candidates, um, but most of them didn't look like me. Mm. So I think the two of us as a team, um, I hope and I, I do believe that um, we would have inspired other folks from our community um, to see themselves in these types of roles mm. um, and to know that it has been done before. It's possible, um, challenging, but possible. Um, so 
it was really great to then there were but there's also skepticism also in the African Nova Scotian community in the North End um, there's a lot of change happening a lot of people um, from my community believe you know there's a shift happening without them in a sense mm. um, so there was kind of like why why get involved this doesn't really matter nothing's going to change like the cost of housing's going up like nothing's going to change in our neighborhood um, so there was a lot of conversations, difficult conversations, I think, that we had to have. Um, but we made sure to talk to people in spaces that felt safe, um, which it was very helpful that we're both from the North End, I think. Yeah. Um, so I, if, for me, if I'm ever involved in another campaign, I think I would probably look for people like myself who've never been involved before because I had I had no idea what I was doing, but I kind of think, and our team is very grassroots as well. Uh -huh. um, most of the people who I worked with, and some of them right here today, have never worked on a campaign before. But on election day, I had people watching people count ballots at every single table. I didn't know that you didn't do that. I thought, well, you would just send people to watch it every <laughs> single table. Um, so we were kind of over-prepared, um, but I think that happened because it was a space that I was nervous to be in. Mm. Um, so I kind of had thought I had to do everything. Um, so I think having that experience as feeling like an outsider um, it was very helpful, and I think I would probably always look for that um, because it brings newness to the table um, and things, you know, people say, I never thought about it like that before. I didn't think about having needing to have signs around the corner um, for folks. Why not? You want people to vote, right? So, yeah. yeah. Great, thanks. So I think we're running up on the end of the panel, so Steve, the last word goes to you. Oh, well, I'll be brief then, okay? <laughs> I wanted to pick up on your point about, you know, how it's important when people look at city council, province house, the federal government, that it's representative, that it looks like the community looks like, that there be people of color there, that there be people from the LGBT community there, that there be people with disabilities there, because if we're not there, then we're, but where, how do you see yourself getting there is a big challenge. But beyond that, I'd say I had a very interesting discussion with a friend of mine who's a disabled politician in BC. He used to be the mayor of Vancouver. His name is Sam Sullivan. He's a very different political stripe than am I. But Sam has been in politics in BC for close to 20 years. And he said that just by showing up and just by being at the table, the conversation is different because I'm a guy with a disability or because I'm from wherever. And if we don't get there, if we don't get to those tables, then it becomes the same stale, old, boring, middle-aged white guy conversation that's been being had for millennia, right? So I think that, that, that that's, I don't know if it's a summing up thing, but I think that, that that's the important thing for me is we need to be there and it needs need, need to be representative because if it's not, then it's a real shame. It's a real loss for the whole community. I think that is an excellent note to end it on. Thank you to our whole panel. That's this week's episode of the Offscript podcast. Offscript is a podcast produced by Springtide, and we are a Canadian charity committed to helping people lead change through politics with their integrity intact. 
find us at springtide.ngo, facebook.com slash springtideco, or on Twitter at springtideco. You can find me on Twitter at Mark Coffin. Subscribe to the podcast, search for Offscript wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to this show on a web browser, you can also subscribe for email updates in the right-hand sidebar of this post and get a message whenever a new show is released every Wednesday. Share this podcast on Facebook or Twitter. You can find an easy-to-share link at springtide.ngo slash OS29. That's for Offscript episode 29. If you like what we do, support our work. You can chip in $3, $5, or $7 a month over at springtide.ngo slash Offscript support. One more thing before you go, if you enjoyed this discussion and you enjoyed in particular hearing what Steve Esty had to say, I want to let you know that he is also featured in an earlier episode of the Offscript podcast. So if you're a new listener and you weren't with us for our first season, that one's worth uh, checking out. It's uh, episode eight, so you can find it at springtide.ngo slash OS8, and it's called Ready, Willing, and Able, Running for Office with a Disability in Nova Scotia. Uh, Steve's one of the three stories we featured uh, alongside Kevin Murphy, who is now the Speaker of the House of Assembly in Nova Scotia and has been since 2013 and is the first speaker in all of the British Commonwealth to serve that office from a wheelchair. You'll also hear from Jerry Pye, who is an MLA from an earlier time who uh, lived and ran with a disability in Nova Scotia. So check it out, Offscript, episode 8, springtide.ngo slash OS8 to pull that up or you know scroll back in your uh, feeds and find it wherever it is you're listening to podcasts.